Welcome to the Presentation Boss Podcast. I'm Kate Norris. I'm Thomas Craft. And we're here to help you plan, design, and deliver your best presentation. It's episode 61 of the Presentation Boss Podcast. Welcome to the show, folks. And we've got another guest interview on today. Today we have Tams and Webster. Now, I first came across Tams and a couple of years ago now, and yes, this podcast has definitely morphed into us just inviting guests on that we've followed and loved for years. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. <laughs> Presentation boss baseball cards coming out soon. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a bit like that. <laughs> But Tamsin is absolutely brilliant. I remember first hearing her on a podcast a couple of years ago, and it was one of those ones that I immediately sent to Thomas and just went, wow, this woman understands presentations, messaging at a way deeper level than we do. We need to get on board with her. Mm. And I've learned a lot from her since. I think you called me from memory. You were like so excited. And I totally get it because she's wonderful to listen to and deeply knows her stuff. Mm. And Tamsin was so comfortable to talk to. She is just a lovely human being. She was like an immediate best friend. Yeah. And of course, another new friend from the East Coast of the USA. So she's in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, And during this episode, there's probably a couple of longer pauses because both of us found ourselves just so deeply in thought and nodding along while listening to her clear and simple answers and her philosophy around TED, around messaging in presentations. And we touched on introversion as well. Yeah, definitely. I, I loved listening to her. So let's find a little bit more out about Tamsin. Perfect. As a professional idea whisperer, Tamsin helps people find, build, and tell the stories of their ideas. She combined 20 years in brand and message strategy with four years as a TEDx executive producer to create the Red Thread, a simple way to change how people see and what they do as a result. Though, as she'll tell you, everything she knows about people, speaking, and change, she learned at Weight Watchers. Today, Tamsin is a globe-hopping keynote speaker who consults with enterprise companies like Verizon, Johnson & Johnson, and State Street Bank on how to get their big ideas to have the impact they deserve. Welcome, Tamsin Webster, to the Presentation Boss podcast. It's so great to have you on. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I am delighted. I've heard great things about you both from a very good friend, so looking forward to chatting. Oh, Oh, thank you. So, Tamsin, we've heard your official bio, the curated one that's on your website, Um, but can you tell us who is Tamsin when she's not at work? Oh, Lord. Um, (laughs) You know, actually, I tried. There's not too much of a gap between the two, Um, but, you know, (laughs) I think the, the unofficial me peeks out in all sorts of different ways. So one thing I'll say about myself is that I'm relentlessly pattern driven. Um, it's, it's, it's not diagnosable, but probably because I've never asked <laughs> anybody <laughs> to diagnose it. Um, but I'm just very much a creature of habit. Um, but other than that, some, some things that people wouldn't necessarily know. I, I love doing uh, American style crossword puzzle every day. I do the New York Times crossword puzzle every day. It's part of my, my normal kind of morning pattern. Um, I'm a big, big fan of mystery novels. So I've read all of the Sherlock Holmes canon and I've read the entire Agatha Christie canon and I'm making my way through the, all the Nero Wolf books by Rex, uh, Rex Stout. Um, and I also love ballroom dancing. So there you go. Those are my hobbies cool. when I can actually get out of the house, which I can't do for ballroom dancing right now. So it's a, it's a lot of mystery novels across the world. Yeah, right. So why don't you tell us a little bit, Thames, and basically how you got started in the speaking world? I got started in the speaking world. It's funny, I actually remember, <laughs> I remember very distinctly going to an event um, and seeing someone else speak. And this was fairly early on in the days of social media. And so I had gone to see someone speak because they're just putting on some kind of local seminar on Kind of what it was and how to do it and whatever. And I remember going, I took a colleague of mine, a woman who was on my team. And this is the time when I was working at Harvard Medical School and I was in charge of the fundraising communication strategy. And I remember seeing this person present and her content was really, really strong, but her presentation was not as strong um, let's, and, and that's fine because I think great content can over, overcome poor delivery often, not always. Yeah, right. And I remember turning to my colleague and going, 
if this is if this is what people are looking for and 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 valuing i said this is not a hard bar to beat we could actually do something really interesting here mm. um, and so i got started by presenting the work that we were doing at harvard medical school to other nonprofits, other colleges universities those kinds of things you know about fundraising and marketing and really started there just sharing what we were doing and sharing some of the thinking which turns out a lot of it was the thinking that has now evolved into what I do now uh, and it really started there so that was uh, I recently had cause to look that up but that was back in 2003 so uh, officially have been speaking professionally in one form or another for 17 years now so it's a nice. long road it's interesting that you say that um, that good content can overcome uh, overcome a delivery because we often ask people that what's more important content or delivery so it's just interesting you've, you've jumped straight in there and um, so my perspective on this is that people notice delivery first, of course, right? Like, yeah. Because that's how we as humans are wired. We're like, do I, do I like you? Do I trust you? Like, are, are you going to take care of me in this time that, you know, we're, we've got yeah. this meeting or you're going to waste my time? Like all of this stuff is happening in our brains before we know it. But fundamentally, as long as from a content perspective, like they're going to make certain judgments of that right off the bat. But from a content perspective, if you're able to still answer those questions, so for instance, really right out of the gate, establish something that so the audience says, oh, this is relevant to me. This is going to answer a question I have that right now. They really will. They're like, okay, well, I may not love how this person's presenting it, but I need the answer to this question. And if the content continues to deliver both from a narrative standpoint, you know, it's interesting to listen to and it's valuable information, people will, in my mind, forgive a lot. So I always start with the strength of the content because I think good content can overcome, can actually solve, not just overcome delivery, but could solve a lot of delivery issues in the first place. Mm, I like, I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. So Tamsin, um, tell me about your work now. Who do you help and how? So I primarily work with, so I, I think of it, I have this like mental Venn diagram in my mind and, <laughs> and in yeah. one bubble is um, academics and experts. And so, mm-hmm. you know, folks with like solid actual research backgrounds, and even if they have, don't necessarily have um, advanced degrees, they have significant experience in the field. They aren't just people who just waltz in and we're like, hey, I've got an idea. Like they've actually done the work. So academics and experts. Yeah, exactly. Academics and experts in one bubble. Um, The next bubble is founders, particularly founders that oftentimes come from that academic or expert background. So I work a lot with scientists, technologists, engineers, uh, which means I do a lot of work in startups, uh, particularly that are um, biotech, pharma, fintech, uh, clean tech, uh, lots of tech, um, because generally they need help. Let's just put it that way. Translating English to English, it's like to say. Um, and then the third bubble are thought leaders. And so these are folks that want to have a stage of some sort. It's not necessarily professional speakers, though I do a lot of work with them. And the way I describe it is I really work with folks who want to move between bubbles, right? So founders who want to take advantage of, let's say, doing a TEDx talk or a TED talk in order to to get their uh, their world, you know, their view out there. Same thing with academics and experts. Uh, I work typically if I'm working with a professional speaker, it's somebody who's trying to add intellectual rigor to their work. They they want to maybe they've been kind of more of an entertaining or a motivational speaker, and they're trying to figure out how they can really differentiate themselves by adding real good, strong content to it, you know, and obviously I don't really help the founders become more academic, but it's kind of generally, it's like some blend of those, of those three. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. You're absolutely perfect for our audience then definitely. Cause that's um, not super dissimilar to what we focus on, which is the experts. And I love that phrase translating English into English. English. Yeah. Yes, I am. That's uh, my unofficial title, English to English translator. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yep. Can you so tell good. us? It's, well, and, oh, go ahead. I was going to ask about your background in TED because you're yes. quite prominent in that field. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So the, and it's, and it's, 
it's interesting because it's um, it's probably true that like the folks at the headquarters of TED like probably are like who, um, <laughs> but though though <laughs> though the the they would kind of I think I, with aided awareness as we like to say in the advertising industry they'd probably go oh okay um, so my I started with TEDx Cambridge Massachusetts mm-hmm. here in the U.S. East Coast. Um, about five years ago now, I was uh, invited to be the executive producer. And so in that original role, my job was to help select the speakers, uh, hone their ideas, help them draft the talks, help them uh, craft the talks, perform the talks. And I was the MC. Um, And this, since I started my business four years ago, you can see that that those two things started to run against each other pretty quick. Um, So two years ago, I stepped back uh, and kind of took on a different role. And uh, so for the last year-ish now, or kind of coming on a year, they've asked me, I've been working as what we call the idea strategist for them. So the role that I now have is that the speakers are selected, so I'm not involved there, and I'm glad for that. It creates a bit of a conflict of interest with the work that I do with my private clients. Uh, So I'm not involved with the the selection of the speakers. And then what I'm really doing with them is helping to make sure that their their ideas are strong enough to build the rest of the talk on. So what we're really doing is honing the idea. We are making, we're finding the argument for the idea. What are the bones of that? Um, So that when it get, when that talk gets turned over the writing coaches, because we've got those at, at, um, TEDx Cambridge, that the writing coaches are really just helping to bring the, the prose and the language to life. Um, but we are, you know, I and the executive director are getting the talks essentially outlined. Well, I call it a script lit. It's like a script and bullets had a baby. Um, that's what they've got. They've got essentially an outlined script, uh, but still in bulleted form. And we've had some good success. So TEDx Cambridge, and since its founding in 2008, so it's actually the oldest TEDx event in in the world. It's the first license that was issued. Um, Since its founding, we've had 13 of our speakers promoted to TED.com. And I'm very proud to say that six of them were were speakers that I work with directly. So um, it's been, we've had a a very good run so far. I think that's the thing that stands out like any, Oh, quote unquote, anybody can sort of pick up a TEDx license and run an event. But certainly sounds like TEDx Cambridge has quite the quite the production value behind the scenes. No, that's true. And uh, there is so TEDx Cambridge is one of one of ten events that was just uh, created, just given a new level actually of, of TEDx events. So uh, right. TED created a level called the Legacy. Uh, legacy events. So the legacy TEDx events, there's 10 of us. I'm not going to be able to tell you all of them. TEDx Sydney is one of them. Um, TEDx, the equivalent of TEDx Rio, TEDx Mile High, uh, TEDx Mid-Atlantic, Singapore. So um, that's for some of them. But this is, they, those, these 10 events have been elevated to kind of like the, the mm. rarest of the rare. And we are just, I mean, stupid excited that we are one of those 10. Um, because We've worked really hard <laughs> um, to make our event as close to TED worthy as possible. And I, like I said, I think that's, that's why it's um, generally TED tends to, has, t- has paid attention to the speakers that we put on stage. And generally our production value is such that it's fairly seamless for them to take one of our talks and put it on TED.com because it, it, we do have that, you know, it's a five camera shoot. And you know, typically when we're not in quarantine, you know, it's this beautiful big, uh, opera house here in Boston where, where we've done it just super high production value and I'd like to think very much TED quality ideas we really make sure that those ideas are at a just a very very different level um, and it's a it's a pretty rigorous process <laughs> um, yeah. to get them there as I think any of the speakers would tell you I think they both love us and hate us by the by the by the end of it <laughs> Yeah right. yeah, right. So one of the <laughs> things cool. we do on this podcast is speech breakdowns where we look at um, a speech and how that person has communicated. So we have done quite a few TED Talks because honestly, they're really accessible and it can be difficult to take an entire keynote. You know, we, we're not doing an hour keynote. Um, <laughs> and we, we know no, that exactly. people, they're, yeah, it's nice to do the short ones. <laughs> yeah. And they're nice and kind of whole. And we know that people do very much look at TED and TEDx now as like how to do public speaking. Mm. So in your opinion, what does make a good TED talk? It's, oh gosh, this is such a deep <laughs> it's topic. Just, it's a huge question. Oh. I know. 
It's a huge question. Yeah. Um, so what I believe makes a great TED talk is the ability to make the case for an idea in such a way that it feels like the story that people would tell themselves about the idea. Um, and to me, that's really important. So I think a lot of times with, you know, and I have this conversation a lot because we do work with so many academics with TEDx Cambridge, but also with my own clients. Um, you know, the typical, what most of us are taught, even in business, if we've ever actually been taught how to give a presentation, and you all know this from the work you do, nobody really is other than here's PowerPoint, here's how to make bullets. Um, <laughs> typically, the structure that most of us have been taught is, here's my conclusion, let me defend it. Right. Here's my conclusion. Here are my three points to defend it. Um, let me restate your conclusion. It's just another way of like, tell them what you're going to tell them, your conclusion, tell them, here are my three reasons, and then tell them, you know, what you told them, here's my conclusion, which is fine, except that it's actually not very persuasive because usually mm -hmm. what we're doing is we're arguing for the position of somebody who is already convinced that this is a great idea. We're convinced. We already know all of that. We're speaking from that point of knowledge. We're speaking unfortunately, through the lens of the curse of knowledge, where we can't imagine what it's like not to hear that idea for the first time. Yep. So I think a truly great TEDx talk, just even in its structure, is one that starts where the audience is now and works with the audience to bring them to a new point. Um, and, and to do that, if I'm trying to talk to a client, like, because I, as, as I'm sure you do, I work with a lot of just folks in business like founders and those kinds of and those people um i also work with folks who want to be professional speakers um and when they come to me and they say well i you know i want to give a of a tedx talk one of the things i say is that okay the minute you tell me that you are asking me to make sure that your idea is at a fundamentally different level than than it was before and the way that i summarize that is that it has to be Here's how I would, all of the, everything I've just said, I would summarize it this way, that a great TEDx talk articulates cleanly and crisply something people want via a means they didn't expect. So something that is, is relevant to what is, solves a big problem in the world right now or answers a question that people have right now. And the answer that, the, that is, is essentially what the idea is, is unfamiliar, unexpected, and different than what they've heard before. And so a lot of, you know, you can have a very successful update meeting at your, at your company or even a successful paid keynote that doesn't actually meet that level. Um, but mm -hmm. that's, I, keep, I always come back to that. Something people want by a means they don't expect. And I think that's, that's where the true power of a great TEDx talk comes in. I can totally see that mm. reflecting back, Kate, on like the, the talks we've done a breakdown on, the ones we really love probably fit exactly that. Now that yeah, like yeah. looking at it in that lens, right? I mean, it's because, I mean, if you think about some of the great ones, right? I mean, so um, some of them are just easy to, easy to yeah. summarize quickly. So um, like Amy Cuddy's power posing talk, like you can summarize mm -hmm. that idea as body language may be a way to overcome imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. overcome imposter syndrome that's something people want Me means you don't expect power posing right body language um joe smith i know as we share this is one of our favorites but you know how can you save you know how can you reduce wasted paper across the globe use only one paper towel these are things that are you know it's a combination of something people want via means they don't expect and the truly great talks not only have that core idea, but this is what I was talking about before, they're actually able to make the case for that idea in a way that is, that you really walk away, I mean, the way that, another way I express it is, is over and over again, it's just that, you, that you've, you tell people something they can't unhear. You have created a case for that that is just unforgettable, right? It's, it's the reason why Simon Sinek and his start, you know, and his How Great Leaders Inspire Action, mm. the talk everybody refers to as Start With Why. Um, <laughs> it's the, it's, it's, you know, everybody walks away with the, you know, the minute he says people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. They're like, I can't unhear that. And <laughs> once you can't unhear that in the context of everything else that he set up, 
now you know so how do you how do you succeed when others don't how do you continue to stay innovative which is how you start that that's something people want you start with why like something people want via means they don't expect yes yeah right right i mean you you've kind of alluded to a couple of breakdowns that we have done and maybe some that we will do in future but interestingly i want to talk about joe smith because i think he was like the second breakdown we ever did and um, I've heard you talk about Joe Smith before. Did you work with him on that talk or your friends or something, or you're just a big fan? I didn't. No, I just, it's one of my favorite examples. Yeah, I have, I had, I, so I have full disclosure. I have nothing to do with that talk whatsoever. It's okay, just, right. um, I love it as an example, probably for some of the reasons you love it. It is, it's four and a half minutes long. I think it's 462 words. Um, and it does, you know, it does one of those things actually that I think, again, is the effect of a, something that people can't hear. That in that four and a half minutes, 462 words, you will never look at a paper towel the same way again. Oh, yes. yeah, it's, he, changed, it's changed my behavior. Absolutely. absolutely. And so, and he does all that by flubbing the first line. Uh, he is not a great presenter, like by all, mm -hmm. all the traditional delivery things. He's not a natural presenter. He's not terribly charismatic. Like I adore that because it just, it proves out so many things that the power of the content can overcome delivery. You can screw up and recover. Um, that if your case for your idea is well-constructed, um, and you, and it has all the pieces that people's brains are subconsciously looking for, you can permanently change how people think and behave. And so I, it's just, it is the most powerful example of that because it is, it's visceral. People absolutely start using paper towels differently afterwards. And it's, and it's 462 words. Love that. Yeah. It sounds like you've analyzed it deeper than, than we have. I didn't know it was 462 words, yeah. for instance, but. <laughs> yeah, it's something like that. It's under 500. Oh. Um, yeah. It's crazy just, I just love concise. it because a lot of people, it's crazy concise and people, I think, so there's a great quote by Winston Churchill, uh, not made about presenting, though he is a wonderful person to look to for presenting. And he said that we must learn to be as good at the short and sharp as we are at the tough and long. And so, you know, not by accident, given all the work that I've done with TEDx speakers, like I 100% am behind that, meaning that I think that we spend a lot of time on the tough and long and, or just the long. <laughs> and yeah. as you all know that, you know, if you've got 45 minutes, 60 minutes, you can eventually kind of get across all the things that you need to get across. You can eventually yeah. touch on all the points that someone needs to hear in order to go, okay, that makes sense. You do not have that time when you've got the three mm -hmm. to 18 minutes of a, of, a, of a TEDx talk. And a lot of times I think people feel like, well, it's just not possible. And so one of the reasons why I love Joe Smith is that he's an immediate proof point against I can't make a big change in this tiny time slot that I've had. And I'm like, mm -hmm. watch Joe Smith, you know, or I'll hold him up as an aspirational point. So like, do you want to, you know, do you want to permanently change somebody's thinking or behavior? Do you want, you want them to permanently think differently about, you know, your product, a service, an industry or whatever? let me show you a power of how that can be done. Show Joe Smith and then kind of use some of the principles that Joe's using to explain how you can build a similar case for your idea. Maybe not in four and a half minutes, but the same elements can be there. So I just love him. Uh, yes. I, he, I think I'm personally responsible for like 7 million of his views. <laughs> He's definitely I mean, one I of my favorites. Joe Smith is absolutely my favorite Ted talk, I think. And I think it's because of the length as well. Like no one wants a longer speech ever. No. No, no matter how interesting. Um, I remember going to even a stand-up comedy and I like I love stand-up comedy. And I went to see one of my favorite comedians, um, an Australian woman, Kitty Flanagan, and she was brilliant. And even by the end of hers, I was like, all right, I'm done now. Yeah. Even though she's my absolute favorite. I'm like, this this is just enough. I don't want this to be longer. Right. Yes. Yeah. And it's funny. I, I find that with TEDx talks, like the magic time, like if, if you're seeing an audience, like a live audience watching it, the magic time you know, is always somewhere between nine and 12 minutes and more than 12 yeah. minutes, people start, start to be like super fidgety mm -hmm. or the speaker has to be like spectacularly great. And, and online, you're able to tolerate more. I'm not sure why, because if you look at those top 20 TED Talks, a lot of them are, you know, in the 18 to 20 minute range. Yeah, and so 
you know, a lot of times people are like, well, I need 20 minutes. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> um, as I like to explain to folks, like the only time we really let somebody be 20 minutes was when they were trying to explain, like their idea was that they, that the way we answered the big problem of consciousness, what it means to be conscious, was that it basically a giant math problem where we haven't invented the math yet. Wow. Um, okay. That is a big idea. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And we had to lay in actually kind of two big ideas in order to get there. One is what's the big problem of consciousness, right? We had to get, and that took literally about 10 minutes to get to like, to actually make that piece, that, that point. And then it, you know, it took kind of the remaining eight to nine minutes, he went over, um, to kind of not explain that math piece. The vast majority of ideas, I would say even... The vast majority of ideas, particularly for TEDx, is don't need that amount of time. And usually, mm -hmm. if, if if a producer or a director has let them go, they there's usually still places to cut. So I continue to use that even in the work that I do, which I know is similar in a lot of ways to the work that you do. Is you know, if I'm working with founders, for instance, on how to tell the story and give the story of their company, and I don't mean the origin story, but you know, when someone says, "So what do you do?" so they can answer for their own minds like are you worth investing in i make the point like you can tell you can make the a express your how this gives you something that you want by means you don't expect in under 30 seconds and you can give a basic overview of the case for your idea product or service in under 90 and then you can start to give more information right but the ability back to churchill's quote to get it down tight actually is a is a process of clarification and so i think one of the biggest lessons i've learned from working so much with tedx is that i don't care what length of content i'm working with folks on that where we always start is actually in that short case like it's it's we don't move to the big content until we can get it into something that they can they can recite in 30 seconds or less that one idea yeah and, and the case for it actually yeah to yeah. be able to say okay um you know, for instance, you know, I work with a startup that um, the way they describe themselves now is that they help people stay on critical medications longer through simple tests that turn uh, results uh, they can't or the effects that they can't feel into results they can see. So, okay, that's, that's, a, that's 30 seconds or less, helping people stay on critical medications longer. That's what people want. Simple tests, that's how, but the unexpected part turning effects they can't feel into results they can see. So now we can't start there. We actually had to figure out the rest of the case. So um, the way that we would do that in 90 seconds or less, say, well, you know, people all over the world suffer from diseases like HIV and high cholesterol uh, that they can't feel. And keeping people on the medications for those, for those conditions is critical. Um, but the problem is they don't feel the effects of the medication either. So they forget to take them, they lose the benefits and all of that. Typical approaches, doctors ask the patients in the office whether or not they've been taking the medication, and then they back that up with tests. The problem is those blood tests don't come until weeks later when the patients back off their medications again. But since seeing is believing, this company wanted to do something different. They said, what if we can take these effects that people can't feel and turn them into something they can see? What if we made the invisible visible instantly? So what they did was they created urine tests that patients take in the office. The providers could see the results right then, and they can know how to adjust what they're looking for so they can get better patient outcomes. Like that's under 90 seconds, like all together. Yeah. And we can go from there and then into a longer pitch. But honestly, you know, what I keep saying and when I've worked with, you know, investors and other folks, like if they're not interested in what you, if they're not interested at that point, like there's not any kind of 20 minute, 45 minute presentation that is suddenly going to go, well, that, you know, now I'm interested. So it's just, it's, it really is just, how do you make that short case? How do you start there? And that's, that's a lesson from TEDx. Yeah. Right. And that's again, another huge idea that you've managed to explain in 90 seconds. And I'm, I'm quite impressed by how succinct that actually was for such a huge concept yeah and yeah so i describe it this way i mean a lot of times people you know when they're looking for ideas right or they're looking for taglines so i spent you know my background is 20 years in branded message strategy and a lot of times companies like focus on that tagline and they try to start there um i get it with professional speakers who are like i want to find my word or you know i want to find 
something like that. And the issue is if you start with something that small, like, and you think you can take that and blow it up, it's, it's, it's the kind of same situation. Like, have you ever found like the perfect picture for something and then, and then you, and you wanted to print it or blow it up and put it on like in a presentation or whatever. And then you did that and it was pixelated and it looked like totally crappy. That's because there literally isn't enough data in that little file for it to survive at scale. And the same thing is true if you try to start with finding, quote unquote, finding your idea or finding your message by trying to find that tagline that captures it. You can't. You have to actually start with the big version. You have to start with what's the full story of the idea? What's the full case for the idea? And once you've done that, then you can find within it that something people want via means they don't expect. You have to distill it. You have to get it down from the big rather than up from the small down from the big rather than up from the small I like that mm. I don't think I've ever said it that way either so thanks for yeah. thanks for asking <laughs> I'm loving um how simple you're making a lot of these concepts yeah it's uh, uh it's a practice it's definitely a practice and but this mm. is like I said it's just to me this is the this is the point like we all want to be clear. We all want to spread mm. our ideas. We all want this. And whether it's, you know, internally, professionally, within our organization so that we can drive action or drive change, you can't do that unless people understand what it is that you're saying. And even though we all use words all the time, it's fundamentally a really hard thing to do because words are a terrible proxy for these big, beautiful ideas that we have in our heads. Um, and so speaking of mysteries, I mentioned that, Agatha Christie once wrote in the words, actually through the voice of Hercule Poirot, um, that words are only the outer clothing of ideas. And I love that. So words are the, only the outer clothing of ideas. And what I love about that is it, it gets at the fact that ideas, even if they get turned into products and services, those are still proxies, right? They'd still... They don't fully capture the thing. They don't fully capture the idea. And so I think it, it both helps explain the challenge, right? Because we're essentially, anytime we describe an idea, anytime we try to present it, we're essentially just throwing a sheet over the invisible person, right? We're throwing something over it to try to give it shape and make it concrete. Um, yeah. And that's hard. And so you have to find the right words that help you kind of like poke in and go, oh, there's the neck. I'm like, oh, there's a, there's an, uh, there's a crook of an arm. But the other thing that's beautiful about that quote to my mind is it means that once you understand the basic shape of your idea, it becomes a lot easier to figure out how do you adapt that idea well to different situations, different audiences, different applications. And this is something I'm sure you all see in business all the time where businesses try to come in and are like, what's our message? Like, what's our elevator pitch? Like, what's our whatever? And they, and, and it's worse, you know, the worst case is in sales where they try to give salespeople scripts. And if you've like any great salesperson, like doesn't follow a script. So we have to be able to find these ways of still being consistent with what the idea is, but being able to find ways, the words to just change how we talk about something, situation to situation. I just love that mental image of the outer mm. clothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. And I like what you said about like, you throw in something over it and try and find the shape, find the form of it. Sure. Yeah, it's why when I'm working with folks, almost always do it through the lens of one of the first questions I always ask is what's the first use case for this message? Where are you going to use it? So that we're not just trying to say, what is the message? Because that's trying to that's trying to capture an invisible man. You can't do that. You can't just grab something invisible out of the air. We say, I say, where are we going to use it? Is it a landing page copy? Is it a white paper? Is it a proposal? Um, is it an inter, is it your annual sales kickoff meeting? Where are you going to use it? Because once you know what the application is, then you actually have the starting amount of information that you that's required to come up with a good message. Mm -hmm. Because in my mind, a message is, is not the idea. They're actually two separate things. You know, again, the message is the outer clothing. But the way that you decide what it needs to wear is that you need to decide who it's going to the party with. So who's the audience? Who are you talking to about it? And what, do you, what kind of time do you want to have there? What kind of party is it? Like, what, what are you trying to accomplish? 
Because mm -hmm. think about it this way, you, the two of you and I can have a conversation about presenting and messaging because we're both in this business and we can talk about it at a level and a depth that, that includes a lot of shorthand and whatever. And we can, you know, whether that's just trying to deepen each other's understanding, we're going to talk about it one way. But imagine how it is that you explain what you do to, let's say, a six-year-old child. Mm. Does it change what you do? No. But you're going to use different words to describe it because it's a different audience and you're trying to accomplish something different with it. And this is why starting with that idea of like, where are you going to use it is so powerful because you, you have to think about, okay, what is the audience here? Who am I talking to about this? What do I want to have happen? You're going to talk very differently to, you know, an initiative that you want to your, to your team, like to your staff, than you are to, let's say, your internal C-suite executives to, in order to get additional funding for it, right? It's a different conversation. And yeah. you need to be putting different clothes on that idea in order for it to be successful in that situation. Yes. That makes some sense. That's, it's the fun part of the work to me. It's like, this is mm. like I said, I love mystery novels. So to me, it's <laughs> like every client is a puzzle. Uh, it's a puzzle just to figure out, okay, how do we not only like, what is it? Like, what is this idea? Cause that's really where we're fundamentally, that's what we're doing. We're trying to find the shape of that invisible person. But so often I'm in the, I'm in the position of doing one of two things with my clients and one and first one that people, you know, clients come to me is that we're trying to differentiate. How do we take our thing and make other people see why it's different, better, a better answer to what's out there than what's already out there. And a lot of times, you know, whether it's a concept or a product or service, you know, I've done a lot of work in commodity markets, you know, where like it's electric manufacturing. Like, how are you going to make like your voltage detector fundamentally different than somebody else's voltage detector? Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, or if it's I'm working with speakers, you know, a lot of people talk on leadership. Well, how do I, how am I going to take this person's take on leadership and make it fundamentally different? and yet as powerful for that person. So that's just, a, that for me is a giant puzzle. And the second thing that creates just such a fun puzzle for me is diversification. Like, okay, they've built a message or they've built a product or a service for one audience, one industry, one sector. And then they're thinking, well, how do we, how do we adapt this to a different one? Either how do we get to people who are not yet familiar with our product, who don't have any idea that we exist, like, cause that's a whole different audience, right? Or if we've been speaking to folks over here, you know, we know that we can sell in well, you know, in the sales to the sales team, but how do we get the marketing team to see that we're valuable as well? Right. Yep. That kind of thing. Each of those things can just take all these pieces. It's just back to solving that puzzle. How do you figure out the ideas and how do you dress it? So it does that awesome thing. Mm, I really like that. Mm. Is it okay if we change direction very slightly? Because um, I've, um, <laughs> I've heard you talk, I'm sure, Tamsin, that uh, you identify as an introvert. I hope that's correct. Yeah. yeah. That's very correct. That's yeah. extremely <laughs> correct. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, myself as well. But how do you find that uh, being an introvert affects your speaking? And how do you respond to people? Because I'm sure you've had them that say that you can't be a good speaker if you're an introvert, or I'm never oh. going to be a good speaker because I'm an introvert. <gasps> Never. Okay. Well, the first thing I would say is that I, I am, I am deeply introverted and I don't mean just like uncomfortable in group situations. This is, this I can handle because this is like you, the finite number of people talking about something that I'm very comfortable talking about. Uh, I hate networking events. I hate, like I will essentially hide before and after speaking events. And the after piece is where the kind of, the other piece of introversion comes in where it is physically exhausting like absolutely exhausting for me to be around a lot of people all the time. So how does that, how does it affect my speaking? That was the first piece. Um, I would say that where it shows up in my speaking is that it's absolutely why I'm so passionate about being passionate about what you talk about. Mm -hmm. Because if you're passionate about what you talk about, it really does overcome everything else. Cause you just get into it and you're like, Oh my God, I love this <laughs> stuff. And then you can just keep going as clearly I have, I hope I haven't kind of gone over my allotted time anywhere. Um, but I think that's a lot of times where people are like, Oh, I can't speak. I'm introverted. And I think, and maybe you've had this experience as well. Actually, a huge number of speakers, great ones, are highly introverted. 
And part of the reason why they like to present is because it puts them in one of the most comfortable positions, which is instead of them having to go and talk to people like afterwards, it means that once they've kind of put their thing out there, people come to them and ask, actually ask questions that are already at a deeper level. And so that's what's useful for me is that A, it makes me, it, it's just an extra check on like, do you love what you're talking about, Tamsin? Um, B, because I don't want to ever feel not comfortable about that. It also makes me rather obsessive about predicting and anticipating any objections to what I'm saying. So, um, you know, I joke with my clients that I overthink so they don't have to. And, you know, what I think it also does is that it means that any conversations, whether they are business development or whatever that happen after I speak, whether it's a podcast or whether it's, it's, you know, in person on a stage, let's pour one out for that because that's going to be a while before that comes back. <laughs> Um, that I get to have much more interesting conversations, conversations that, that I can engage in that aren't draining to me afterwards because they're about real things. And I, I would say, you know, to, and it's not that extroverts don't talk about real things, they do. And I don't mean to be dismissive of that, I'm really not. Um, it's just that the way that introverts are wired is just that it's much more comfortable for them to kind of connect, just go right to the thing that matters. And yeah. speaking is a real great path to doing that. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I think there's a second question and I forgot to answer it. <laughs> oh, I mean, like you've probably had people in your workshops as clients, whatever, who say, look, I'm never going to be a good speaker because I'm an introvert. What's your response there? Uh, yeah, it's a little bit what I said before, which is, well, one of the best things I can tell them is that I am. Uh, I can also <laughs> say that, you know, I, I had a panic disorder for 17 years as well. So it's been wow. now 11, 12, 12 years um, since any since I've gotten past that. Um, but in a lot of those cases, I can use myself as an example. I was like, listen, like if I can do this, right. And, and do this even in the midst, like I've gave full presentations in the midst of panic attacks. Um, there's actually something really reassuring um, about the fact that you can continue to do that. Right. So a, I use, you know, I think it helps people to know that, a lot of people that they think are just naturally good at this aren't right. That it's, mm. it's a skill oh, totally. um, yeah, yeah. and that they've gotten, you know, and then it, I think it helps to understand that even at the most extreme, like having, you know, extraordinary straight stage fright and, and panic attacks um, that you can still get past that. And I keep coming back to the reason that I would keep going is because the audience or the idea or both were just that important. Mm. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Sounds like a lot of things because, like, I identify as quite a um quite a strong introvert as well. There's a lot of things you've just said that I'm sure I've said to Kate or in our workshops or on this podcast, right? Yeah, I, I think I always find one of the best ways is I'm I'm an introvert. Did did you yeah. know that from watching me speak? I don't think you did. Yeah, I'm gonna go home and you know put my face into a pillow and probably not talk to somebody for another 24 <laughs> hours. But like, I've given you my energy here and now, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that's just I think people have it in their mind what they think what they think is required. And, yeah. you know, I spend a lot of time with, with my clients, just there are many, 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 many paths to success. And there isn't just one way that a great presenter looks, uh, mm. whether it's a paid professional speaker or whether it's, whether it's internal, it, it really comes down to how well do they connect with their audience? How well do they connect with what they're talking about? Um, and how well have they connected what they're talking about to their audience? Like it's those three connections mm. to me that are the secret to success as a presenter. And when I present it that way, they realize, well, that's, that's all doable. Like I can, yeah. I can understand why my audience would care about this and I can understand why I care about this. And then oftentimes the work comes in with how do I make sure that I'm talking about this stuff in a way that the audience cares about it. And that's a skill. And so once you can kind of break it down that way, people go, oh, well, if that's all I need, then, then that's a place to start. And I, I just, I, I really start from the perspective that whatever you have, like you already have the resources that you need to be successful. We just need to figure out what those are. And for some folks, that's going to be charisma on stage. And some folks, that's going to be just really, really quality ideas and content and for other folks it's going to be the you know storytelling and for other folks it's the ability to make data come alive there's just everybody's got something mm -hmm. that is the start of being a great speaker a great presenter yeah mm -hmm. i find working with introverts and extroverts i find the introverts are the ones who are really focused on their ideas and on the messaging 
um, and the extroverts, like they just want to be on stage. And it's kind of like, you need to just stop talking for a minute and think about what you're talking about because <laughs> they're just raring yes. to go. So I actually think That's introverts right. have a huge advantage in that world. Like I, I'm quite an extreme extrovert. And I know sometimes it's like, you know what, just stop, just stop for a minute and think. <laughs> Sounds like something I've yeah. said to you, Kate. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just read some research recently that actually talks about how charisma can, can get in the way of lasting change from ah. your message. Um, because people just love that in the moment. They're actually like so taken in with like seeing you up there and your energy that they actually kind of stop listening. Um, oh. And so, you know, that's, I, I agree, Kate, like it's so important to, kind of find both, both sides. So, you know, I don't do much delivery coaching anymore at all. Like it's cause my, I just, I adore the idea and the message part so much, but I said it earlier, like so much of what people are looking for in delivery can be solved with their content. Um, they can be solved with making sure that they're talking about something that they're really passionate about, or that they can find why they're interested in it. Like once they can, once they can find something that's interesting about it, it's hard for them to like, to not express that interest and excitement about it to somebody else. Um, but I also think that a lot of that can be built in. You know, we just, I don't think people pay enough attention to even how they get the information across again, from a content level. Um, mm -hmm. But you don't tell a story the same way you present data and you don't kind of conduct a thought exercise or even a full interact, you know, interactive activity the same way that you deliver a powerful quote. So if you make sure that your content is built with this variety, just even in how you illustrate points, you will, you will just also start to have kind of a different rhythm than if you only ever tell stories or you only ever give data or you only ever give, you know, statements and quotes or you only ever um, do kind of interaction with the audience. We naturally adopt different personas when we do those things. And so, you know, if I'm helping someone actually craft the content that they're going to deliver you know, out loud, um, that's one of the things I'm looking for too, is, is there a balance to how you're illustrating these points? You know, mm -hmm. are you over relying on something? Because if you can expand that, you're going to just actually change the way you present. Yeah, right. Um, so Tamsin, there's something that we ask all of our guests and that is what is a book or a resource that has maybe influenced the way that you speak and that's content or delivery. Cause I know that content's <laughs> yeah. maybe your baby. <laughs> it is, it is. Well, the one that has affected most, uh, most is probably one that's a bit surprising. It's not a traditional presenting book at all. And that is thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman, uh, who is right. a Nobel prize winning economist, um, who, yeah, it's so good. Well, he talks about system one, system two thinking, thinking fast and slow. Um, and it's basically just a, a it's, it's behavioral economics, right? He's, he and mm -hmm. Amos Tversky, um, or they won the Nobel Prize for their work in behavioral economics. And how is it that we aren't actually as rational as we think? Um, mm -hmm. And you know, I don't know what it was that, you know, I, put, I read the book on a recommendation, not about speaking or content or delivery, just because someone was like, oh, this is an interesting book. It seems the kind of thing that you'd be interested in. And it just ended up really fundamentally changing how I structured content, think about how I present and all of that. Because it really does come down to the fact that, you know, for, you know, one of the things I talk a lot with my clients about is you have to make a decision when you're putting a message together. Are you trying to drive action from this or are you trying to drive change? And by that, I mean, are you trying to drive sustained action? Are you trying to look for something to happen once or do you want it to happen continuously after you have introduced this idea mm. and in order for that to happen change and this is a lesson i learned in 13 years as a weight watchers leader so that's a whole other story and mm -hmm. probably the subject for a different day um but it's also where i got most of my presenting chops because it was the 13 years i figured out that over those 13 years i did 3,000 presentations wow. um, i know that in order to get someone to really fundamentally change that your message has to succeed at two levels and it's you know it's the it's the fast and slow level but it has to feel right to people in the moment yes you have to engage their emotions and whatever but this is a real gut thing right and so that really helped me understand okay this is why it's so important not just for us to tell stories but for but for information whether i don't care how it's presented to be information to be structured like a story 
because if the information is not structured like a story where it starts with establishing something people want, it introduces a problem they didn't know was there. It validates that problem with a belief that they had or, or forgot about that drives kind of that moment of truth that drives a change in thinking. And then they see what results. If it's missing any of those pieces or if those pieces are out of order, then it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't satisfy the gut check. Like something just doesn't feel right to people about it because it's not aligned with what they want or it's not aligned with what they believe. It's not aligned with how their fast thinking brain is trying to find the answer. And then it has to survive the second round, right? Because we, I like to say, we're not rational decision makers, we're rationalizing decision makers. So even if in the moment you're like, that presentation was awesome, how many times have we had that experience? And then, you know, three days later, we've done nothing different. Yeah. Yeah. And that's usually because some part of our brain talked us out of it, which meant that the fundamental message didn't stand up to the second kind of thinking, that slow thinking, where their brain really started to pick it apart. Because the brain, like there's no more powerful force in the universe than homeostasis, the desire for everything to stay exactly as it is right now, yeah. stay in balance. And so you introduce a new idea and everything in somebody's wiring is like, nope, don't, no. And, yeah. and that to me, just that combination of how do we make sure our message is resilient enough to not just stand out, like be remarkable, get people to say, oh, this is not just something I want, something you know I didn't expect. But the way that you make that case for that idea is resilient enough to stand the test of time. That all came from Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Excellent. Well, as always, there'll be a link in the, uh, in the show notes to, to that book as well. But uh, maybe more importantly, Tamsin, for the people who've loved this episode and loved you, where can they find you? Uh, all things Tamsin are at tamsinwebster.com. Uh, I'm literally the only Tamsin Webster in the world. So it's, I'm not that hard to find. So Tamsin with an E and an S, T-A-M-S-E-N, Webster. That's everything. Yeah. So um, I love people to find me there. I've got a newsletter that I send out every week um, and would love for people to be part of that. I make sure that that is as useful and as actionable as possible. Um, and it's also where I try out new ideas and give away new tools as I'm working on them. So it's kind of an early access to my, to my thinking and my brain. All right. Well, with that, thank you very much, Tamsin, for being on the show. It's been a fascinating conversation. Um, Kate and I were recording on Zoom and Kate and I have the chat and we, you know, tell each other who's asking questions. I just said, how good is Tamsin? Just like so much fun to interview, so much value yeah. here. So thank you for all of that. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a it's always a pleasure to talk with you know, fellow travelers on this presentation road. So uh, <laughs> thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. Head to presentationboss.com.au slash podcast where you'll find the show notes for this episode, all other episodes and other free resources. If you know someone that you'd like to hear from on this show or think that you have something of value to share, email us at podcast at presentationboss.com.au. Most importantly, we rely on you to share the information in this podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please recommend us to a friend or we'd love for you to give us a review on iTunes. It helps more people find us. Have a great week. We will let you I'm go. I'm going to have a cocktail because that's all right. So, all right. I'm going to finish my coffee. <laughs> exactly. Coffee, cocktail. It's just all where you are on the side of the world, right?